Hey, as a listener to the Leading by History podcast, we want to tell you about some exclusive opportunities available to you as a listener. If you go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today, you'll find that there are three tiers of support that will give you exclusive access to our program. We've got the official patron level, the all access tier, and the highest level, the VIP patron level of support. If you want to find out how you can have exclusive access and have impact on what we offer, go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today. Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we're on a constant journey with our listeners, walking and talking our way through history and highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world one episode at a time. Come along for the journey. Leading by History. Welcome back to another edition of the Leading by History podcast. I'm your host, Masiyahu Israel, and it's a pleasure to be with you yet again for another podcast slash videocast. And today we have a very, very, very special guest with us today. Um, and, and we are so glad to have her with us. We've got Jennifer Gonzalez from, uh, you know, the cult of pedagogy. And I never thought that I would join a cult, but uh, I definitely joined with the cult of pedagogy for the last few years. And we welcome you, Jennifer, to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's funny you mentioned that cult because there are a few school districts that have my site blocked because it has the word cult in it. It's an automatic thing. I don't think I've ever heard of an actual cult that had the word cult in its name. Right. So I feel like I'm still safe. And <laughs> like, they don't generally announce themselves that way. So thank you so much for that yes. that really warm welcome. <laughs> yes. Well, well, you know, um, I'm so glad to have you with us. And I know that you're you're busy and I appreciate you, you know, being up at 7 a.m. in the morning, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, for us to be up early to to get things started. So I've been following Call to Pedagogy for for several years. When I, when I started as an instructional specialist in my district, you know, I, I was looking for the best information that I could find to support teachers. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've grown over that time to really understand like the nuance of what teachers in specific districts need. But one of the things that really helped me was putting a lot of teachers on to your podcast and to your website where you always provide like exemplars, you know, of what teachers can do. And I think that that is always very, very helpful for teachers to see, you know, examples of, of what's being talked about. So mm. how did you start the call to pedagogy? I want to get into a little bit about the name that you just alluded to. And then also what got you into the craft of doing what you do today? So the name comes from 
Well, it's it's a live in color song, cult of personality, but that comes from a phrase which is older than that song. Black but, rock band, right? The black rock band, yes, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, they were very short lived. They didn't have I don't think any any other hits beyond that. But um, so and and I've always liked the word pedagogy. So somehow I, well, and actually the reason I was drawn to that play on words is because I was always really obsessed with the craft of teaching is, is soon as I became a teacher, I just loved the nuts and bolts of it. And most of my teaching career was in a middle school. And for some reason, middle school often tends to draw in, or maybe it's the culture of middle school, but there's a lot of people teaching in middle schools who are just tired of teaching and they've really fallen out of love with it. And so in both middle schools that I taught in, I felt like one of the only people that was just super geeky about my job. I just really loved talking about lesson ideas and books I was reading. And I would get shut down a lot. A lot of people would be like, well, we're not going to talk shop at lunch. And so I just always wished that I, you know, I would, I would gravitate toward a few people who would really like to talk about those things with me. Um, but for the most part, it just wasn't that cool to talk about it. So um, when I started my site, and I'll explain how I started it in, in a minute, but I wanted to create a place where I could gather with other people who were sort of like-minded also and and really liked talking about how to improve as teachers. The way that I started it, I was teaching at a college. I was teaching pre-service teachers. I did. I don't have a PhD. I just have national board certification. But so I was teaching undergrads, and I did that for a couple of years, and it just sort of dried up after a while. Like they, their enrollment was messy, and um, I was looking at going to Vanderbilt for a PhD program. I uh, did a little bit of research on that and I found out that it was a sort of five day a week, like residential program almost. It was really hardcore. I had little kids at the time. I was like, I can't do that. I can't be going down to Nashville every, you know, every, every day. And I was kind of bummed out and I thought, you know, I'm, I was learning a little bit about how to do online things um, through just a, an extra class I was taking. And I realized I could be doing what I was doing for my small group of pre-service teachers um, online. And I could reach maybe more people than, you know, the couple dozen that I was teaching every semester. So I just sort of started it that way. And that was the idea. I was going to write some blog posts. And then I added a podcast, which I thought I had to interview people face to face. It took about a year and a half for me to realize I could do sort of remote stuff. And then I got better at that piece of it. Um, and then I just started kind of adding things on. I created online courses and started learning how I could create uh, some stuff that I could actually sell for classroom use. And so all of those pieces came together. And, um, you know, I'll have people come to me now and ask, you know, if I want to go back to teaching, I've been offered teaching jobs. I've also been criticized because I'm not in the classroom anymore. And And my response to all of that is, yes, I could. I could pick up a teaching job right away but I would have to completely stop what I'm doing because what I'm doing right now, uh, it requires more time than I even have. So I'm constantly behind in all the stuff that I want to be doing. And like, you know, you asked for this interview a year ago <laughs> and uh, it takes me a long time to get to, I mean, anybody who reaches out to me, I basically have to say to them, Let, let's schedule it out for a year. So as much as I would love to go back to classroom teaching, what I'm doing now, I feel like I'm having a bigger influence on what happens in more classrooms. And I really love it. I, I hate not being able to work directly with kids, but um, but I, I like what I'm doing. I feel like I'm sort of uniquely positioned to be able to do this particular kind of work. So and and so, just to to revisit briefly. So mm -hmm. 
did you know the name was going to ring as it has? Like when people say cult of pedagogy, there's this kick to it that is sort of like, hmm, let me check that out. I knew it was going to be a little different and I'm I'm glad for it now. I mean, at first I think there was like the, the, the re hmm. when I speak to people outside of education, they're just, I mean, it took my mom like seven years to like figure out how to say the name of my website. At least educators can say it more quickly and, and get yeah. it. Um, but I like that it's different because I know personally when I go out to see other websites that are education related, they, a lot of them blur together. You know, it's just like the teacher's corner or whatever. Right. And they all right. kind of, so Sounds I know cool. at least it's, it stands out anyway. <laughs> right. Right. Without yeah. question. Without question. Yeah. And you know, um, so, so, you you give a lot of uh, a lot of good information. A lot of your uh, podcasts uh, really get into the how tos, and that's what I like about mm -hmm. you know what you do is that you you know you may not be uh, in the classroom as an educator right now, but you're still educating classroom teachers, and I think that that interaction between you and 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 those folks is going to always um have some of the you know the tenor of of you know being close to mm -hmm. uh students because they're bringing those questions to you they're telling you what has worked and what hasn't worked you know yes i was a, a classroom educator for 15 years um in you know in k in the k-12 space mm -hmm. uh, and then moved into being a coach what's funny is that you know when I was moving from, I was working in a, um, uh, a, a one of those facilities that is like a, a private day um, instructional facility. Um, and, you know, where students were really uh, dealing with trauma, anger, all of that. And it was. Oh, it that was, kind of private day thing. I'm yeah, picturing, I'm picturing yeah. super wealthy Harkness no, tables. No. Like, no, no. Okay. <laughs> that kind of private not. day. Okay. Private day treatment facility. Understand. And, and, uh, and it was changing me as a person. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I had to be extremely aggressive mm -hmm. uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you didn't stand up for yourself, I mean, kids would literally put their hands on you. And so I, I, I was, I was becoming very militant and, you know, I was working out every day and pumping up and ah, you know, because you had kids are like 300 pounds, oh six gosh. foot five. They're like 18. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, and I've seen staff members be assaulted and beat down and all kinds of stuff. And it was changing me. And I was like, this isn't the joy of teaching. You know, Dr. Goldie Muhammad talks about bringing the joy because it gives us the humanity, our humanity back. And, and, and I, I pray for the day that some of the work that we do can seep into those private day facilities that can actually help them to bring joy into that space, which I think can change things, but you yeah. gotta be healthy yourself in order to do that. And, you know, I, I stepped away trying to get a teaching job in the same district where I'm the instructional specialist for K-12 now. And I, I couldn't get hired as a teacher. It was the funniest thing. You know, I'm, I'm a teacher of the year. I had, you know, a great track record. I uh, had been teaching for maybe a decade at the time, but they hired me as an instructional coach. And that's the funny twist. And I couldn't get a teaching gig, but I got a gig as an instructional coach in the beginning or what they, what they called a career 
coach that helped uh, uh, new newcomer teachers, huh. right? Uh -huh. And so that started my journey. And, you know, I believe that everyone is in the space and place where they are because they're needed in that, that niche of the universe. Yeah. So, you know, I never let anyone attempt to say to me, oh, well, you, 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 you haven't been, I spent 15 years, you know, mm -hmm. hard body mm -hmm. in the classroom and I mm -hmm. put the work in. And when I became an instructional coach, I still was in classrooms helping teachers real time. Now as a specialist, I'm not in the uh, uh, physical classroom as often as I was, but I still tell my teachers, I'll come in and teach a lesson with you. I still go in mm. and co-teach and I never ask them to do anything that I wouldn't do myself or can't do. Right. right. And I think that's where we are kindred in that. I believe that you'd pick up your stuff and go right into a classroom to help do the stuff you talk about because you still have a love and a passion for it. I still have a love and a passion for it. And I think people need to, to recognize that. So I'd have your back any day of the week <laughs> that you can't talk the talk you talk and mm. walk people through solutions if you didn't have the wherewithal and the know-how. Because I know that there are teachers who are in the classroom today who have no idea what they're doing. Mm. And just because they're classroom teachers doesn't give them the okay with me. Right. right. Well, and you know what? That criticism almost 100% comes from people who are responding to me saying something along the lines of, here's what you're doing and here's why it's not working and here's what you could be doing instead. And their response is, no, I don't want to change. You don't know what you're talking about. It's harder exactly. than it used to be. Mm -hmm. So it, it's pretty much always that. And it's like, yes. you could be doing better though. Here's an idea. Try it. <laughs> right, right. And then and then come back and feed me yeah. you know, the response because it's going to help everybody in the long run, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're um, almost always locked in that place of they want to blame parents, society, exactly. whatever. That's so it's what like they're, they're not taking ownership anyway. And, right. and so. Right. That won't work with my kids. Mm, right. That, that, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So we've heard yep. that, right? Yes. And so, um, you know, at this point, we're bulletproof to that because we know the real deal because there are hundreds and thousands of teachers who are following the stuff that we're saying and are implementing those things and having grand success yeah. thus our platforms right so right. so we we mm -hmm. we want to continue to cater to those people and this this podcast that we do here at leading by history is for those educators mine specifically in history yours specifically in the K12 space i mm. want to talk a little bit you know uh, deeper about some things so um, you know, what are your thoughts on how pedagogy should be defined? And I ask that because I wonder if our current experiences require us to update the meaning of it, right? Mm, and, and, yeah. and let me say, so, some of our buddies in the in the in the sixteen space and uh, and beyond, they now say pedagogy, right? They're <laughs> attempting to reconstruct the the Greek there. Uh, I grew up on pedagogy, and that's going to be the way I pronounce I, it from now yes. until the end, right? I, I looked it up online before I started talking it, and, and the, it turned out there were two perfectly acceptable ways of saying exactly. it, and I just picked the one that felt better when that's I was saying correct. it. So so how, how do, yes, I think this is, that's such a big question, and my head is still very muddled about it, but 
some things that I have definitely noticed um, are, well, when you say recent things, there's uprising types, you know, political type rising, uprising things, and then there's been the whole distance learning thing. So I think both present new challenges for us to look at. Um, I'll take the easier one first, the distance learning one, um, which I think that having everybody be pulled at home um, has really made us realize how poorly we were educating so many people to begin with. And this mm. is what I've observed in my own three teenagers. They're blatantly cheating now. And they're like, mm. why should I not cheat? I can find all the answers. And, and what I'm looking at are assignments that are just not particularly challenging. Mm. They're not asking them to come up with anything original. And so they're just like, why should I? And, and I, I've got no argument for it. So I think all it's done is just reveal that what we were doing with them in person, they were going along with it because they were there and it was not too difficult to comply with it. So I think that piece of it has revealed that pedagogy should really be not, I don't think we're at a place anymore where it's like, how can I deliver all of this information into their heads? It's got more to do with teaching them how to learn and teaching them how to think and how to have conversations and how to look at things from different angles. And um, I think that's a really, <laughs> it's complicated to try to nail that down into, okay, well then what are we gonna do in 10th grade? You know, if it's just this sort of nebulous, like we're teaching them how to be thinkers. So um, I, I like what's happening in the spaces of project-based learning, service-based learning, community problem solving, you know, uh, interdisciplinary types of things where what you end up with is some sort of an end product that can some way sort of help make the world a better place. And right. then the child is then also synthesizing a lot of skills and knowledge in order to, to create that thing. And then even moving beyond that into a space where they're iterating and making that thing even better because they're working collaboratively with other people and getting feedback and improving. And, and that, that requires like an entire restructuring of how we do school. So, yeah, right. Right. So right. Along with that, you know, when I see all this stuff that's been happening sort of politically, and I don't even really love that word because that sounds like how should we spend this money? And it's so much bigger than politics, but when I see how divided people have become, and, and that's been primarily because of where we're getting our news sources. I and mean, when I see the uprising against the election and how surprised this group of people was about the election, and I'm realizing they were so surprised about it because they didn't understand how many people in the country wanted this guy out of office because their news sources only told him he was amazing and wonderful. So they didn't, I'm like, do you, do you not seeing what's right. going on in the rest of the country? Like we right. really all wanted this guy out. So, right. so it's got a lot to do now with media consumption and information consumption. And so that sort of does go back again to the idea of teaching our students how to become better consumers of information and better critical thinkers, which is, I don't know, it's a complicated task, but there is more joy in that. And there is more, um, I don't know. It's a much more stimulating and exciting thing to be doing than to just have this set body of information that we're just going to transfer into their brains and then test them on it. And then they're going to forget about it. Correct. Yeah. 
And, and as I saw something on Twitter, you know, I'm on Ed Twitter, you know, mm-hmm. daily for my, my job. And there's a lot to be learned and gained there. But mm. I saw today, it says, we, we ask teachers to differentiate their lessons, but then we give standardized tests. <laughs> and, know. you know, it's yes. like, it's the ongoing, like, duh moment that you yeah. have to continuously have. Um I want to I want to also talk about um you know how have the the current uprisings protests riots attempted coup mm-hmm. influenced the kind of offerings from called a called of pedagogy um you know and 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 have these things changed your lens in any way have you have you found yourself moving into a different level of understanding or approach because of the recent events you know the the to me the recent events didn't necessarily change anything november of 2016 is what really started pushing me in another direction it was that election that made me less willing to be just neutral and just say oh i'm just going to talk about you know learning and it's completely you know um between that between you know michael brown even before that all of those things I realized that being neutral is being part of the problem. And and so I've been much more um, mindful about making sure that what I'm putting out there is going to lean toward making the world more equitable, making teachers more aware of who is in their classrooms and what they need. And so a lot of times when I do that, or when I will put something out that has more to do with social justice, or if it's pro Black Lives Matter, or if it's anything, I will almost always get somebody that says, why don't you just stick to education? Why don't you just stick to, I come to you for ideas for teaching. And so I always have to come back to them and say, this is a huge part of teaching. It's it's the kids in your room. And you're if you're unable to not only build relationships with them as humans and thereby understand what they're bringing with them in terms of their daily experiences and and how some of your behaviors impact their experience at school and so on and then also understand what their needs are just as regular human beings like it's all the same it's all part of the same thing you can't this isn't just you know this isn't cooking it's not you just taking an ingredient and following instructions and you're going to get the same outcome like it's much more complex than that and and honestly i've gotten to the point now that if somebody if somebody in 2021 is still saying why don't you just stick to pedagogy my response to them is you probably shouldn't be a teacher mm. yeah if well, you don't I mean, if you at this point don't yeah. see the connection like then we right. need other people in the classroom like you can go do something else you can write textbooks right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> that we won't purchase but, but, but like, maybe you shouldn't be working with kids right, like right right and so in pedagogy you know in that idea of learning for children really encompasses all of these things so for an educator in 2021 mm-hmm. to be concerned about stepping into the political sphere in any regard mm-hmm. uh what they're saying is that they are not training students to be thinkers yeah. Um, you know, Lerone Bennett made the statement that in a system of oppression, an educator is either a revolutionary or an mm-hmm. oppressor, right? Mm-hmm. Like it is not enough as we've heard some, some of our greats 
say, uh, like Angela Davis and, and others, that it's not enough for us to just be not racist, but we have to be aggressively anti-racist, right? That yeah. we have to no longer be neutral, right? We have right. to have a, a stake in the direction of our civilization, right? And so that doesn't mean that we come in, and as I say a lot in my district, our job is not to reverse brainwash students. We don't say, oh, well, we think mainstream education is taking you this way, so we're going to reverse brainwash you into this other thing. That's not our job. Our job is to help you be a better thinker by presenting to you primary source documentation mm. so you mm -hmm. can see what the people themselves have said throughout history. And that leads me into one of the last in-depth questions before we sort of wrap up for today. When you were in the classroom, what were you teaching? Like what's I, it, what content like, area? Oh, it was, I was language arts. I was uh, language middle arts. school language arts, yes. So this is going to be the perfect question for you, right? Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. as a, a former classroom history teacher, mm -hmm. um, I think even though I was skilled at what I did, I think if I could go back today and talk to my former self, that yeah. I would really have helped a wider range of students in the process, right? Me and too. I would have done more integrative work with mm -hmm. the other content areas. So mm -hmm. my question to you as an Eng English language arts educator, what is the proper place of history or the social studies in K-12? What is your perspective on history? Because the general notion is that history should just remain a mystery, leave mm. it alone, focus on math and English language arts, mm. because that's where the kids really need the work. And, you know, we don't have time for history. So 15 minutes uh, every other day, or whatever the case may be, right. some instances, we're not even going to teach it because we don't have time. What's your position on history? <sighs> and the eyes of all my history educators are on you right now. <laughs> no pressure at all. Well, it's funny that you sort of led with if I could go back and do, because when I think about how I taught literature back then, I, I we didn't really do it with a critical lens at all. I just, and when I think about the kids that I taught, I mean, this is the greater metro area of D.C., it was, you couldn't find a more ethnically diverse or economically diverse group of kids. And I just, I mean, we just kind of, I just taught them the outsiders and we had questions about the plot. And I mean, when I think about the missed opportunity there and so what the place of it is, I, first of all, I hate the idea that it's just been marginalized because one of the things is, is like, I feel like English and history should just be taught together, really, because how do you consume history? It's through the written word or it's through visual communications. It's it's language, basically. So I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like one of the problems with history, too, is that there's just so much that you all have to always decide, what do we even pick? Like, how do we even teach anything? Because there's so much of it. And then there's, for every single thing, there's so many angles you can come at it with from who's going to tell that story. So I almost feel like what we need to do is just, pick something, any era or whatever, any and and teach kids how to do an in-depth study of a particular period or whatever it is, come at it from a lot of different angles, compare it to, to more present day things or whatever, so that they understand how to study history. And then they can take those close-up in-depth skills 
and then take them anywhere really because you can't ever cover it all so it's a mm -hmm. matter of how do they look at it so i mean i just mentioned the outsiders for example i mean i think now if i were to go back i would be like let's let's look at what was going on in that time and you're talking about two groups of white kids in oklahoma i would even ask the question why is this book studied so much why did why did it get so popular i mean i think at the time i talked more about universal themes of like belonging to a group, but there's also a lot of privilege in that book that's just not even you know, examined at all. Mm -hmm. I don't think there are any black people in the entire book. Maybe there were no black people at that part of Oklahoma. I don't know, but it was just, we really just, it was just a lot of missed opportunity. But when I think about the guy that was across the hall teaching history, I can't, I can't see how he would have gone in depth on that stuff. He was looking at his watch waiting to retire. <laughs> well, he really yeah, well, was. He would come right. in every day to how many right. more days he had left. <laughs> right. And see, that's not that's not who we want in the history mm -mm. classroom. Mm -mm. So so I think I think you you sort of pull out what it is that I emphasize is that, you know, in English language arts, there is this big emphasis on skill, 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 yes. skill, right? Like how do you write? proper grammar, direct object pronouns, being able to <clears throat> understand literature from, you know, the perspective and who's the protagonist and who. So those kind of things happen where it's, it's skill. Mm. But, but what English language arts really should be tapping into is the historical context. Mm -hmm. And because if you can't relate the skill to real life, then, you know, how many properly sentenced paragraphs are students going to be writing in daily life? Uh, you know, as as uh, as Dr. Yeah. Johan has, has said to me, he said, if you take a look at how many text messages a student sends within one year, they've already written a published manuscript, <laughs> right? If you were to <laughs> compile those together, mm -hmm. uh, but the T's are not crossed and the I's are not always dotted. Yeah. But it's writing, right? And so they yes. do need—they do need those skills, but they also need to know how to bring those skills into day-to-day -day life. That's where history comes in. Now, on the other hand, you have history, which is focused in this content-heavy, content-rich place. But most people just focus on the content. We got to cover World War One. We got to cover <laughs> World War Two. We got to cover the Civil War. But history should be focused more on skills. So you see, it's a flip. It's the ELA yeah. folks should be focused more on historical context right mm -hmm. and the history folks should be focused more on the skills of history and when you combine the two together as i as i say you know you have history and ela sitting in a tree k-i-s-s-i-n-g mm -hmm. and so that, <laughs> yeah. that's that's what's needed and yeah. um, you know I, I have to cite the work of dr goldie muhammad because she she worked on both sides of mm -hmm. that she worked mm -hmm. as an, an ela teacher a uh, reading specialist, also as a history teacher. And so she has a unique vantage point that allows her to understand that we cultivate genius yeah. by blending skill with content and teaching children how to have joy and criticality. Go ahead. Well, because I'm thinking about that last layer of hers, and I don't, I don't have a, the book is across the room, and I interviewed her months and months ago. But I remember there being a sort of a final layer that has to do with action and and advocacy. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that used to always bother me when I was a student of history is that, you know, we'd open our textbooks and you see Vietnam War was like at the very end of the book. You knew you were never going to even get there. And I'm thinking about <laughs> even recent history. Like we don't really have a space in schools for looking at recent history or at current events. And that to me is still history. I mean, what happened yes. last year is still history. And so 
not only that, but then also when it comes to literature, you know, we're still forcing so much Shakespeare down kids' throats, which is yeah. Shakespeare has its place, but so much has been written, even just in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. Yes. That and, and people are doing such good work out there to get those books into the classrooms. Yeah. So it's just it's now a matter of being sort of selective about what we hold up as almost like our mentor texts and i talk about that in terms of literature but even historical study like let's just study this one captivating situation but yes what goldie muhammad talks about yes it's it's the literacy it's the joy and then it's the like how can i use this in in ways that are gonna you know improve things and and make change and that's not something I really ever remember talking about with my students either. So, and that ties into what you said earlier in the conversation about you know having project-based learning, mm -hmm. you know inquiry learning, you know those kinds of place-based learning, right? All of those kinds of things, mm -hmm. because what, what what they're doing is they're you know project-based learning pushes you to create this this final product, right? But yeah. the process is what you're being scored on, but then. In the end, people from the community, if you're going to do a true uh, project-based yeah. model, the community has to review it. It has to have impact yeah. on the community, right? Like if, if you're going to create a lemonade stand and that's your that's your project, mm -hmm. well, you're tying in math, right? Because mm -hmm. you've got to have someone to to do the books and cook mm -hmm. the numbers and mm -hmm. you know, but 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 then you've also got to have even some of your electives in there because you need to build the cart, you need to have yeah some of that engineering part that's in there. Right. You need mm -hmm. the, the the historical piece because you need to know about the, the history of licensing and where you can set up and where you can't set up. So project-based learning at the end of it, right, if you're going to use the gold standard from mm -hmm. the former Buck in mm -hmm. Institute, who's, who've now changed the name, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, th th they, they talk about now presenting it to community, right? And it's almost mm. like a capstone project yeah. in a sense. And so the community comes in and looks at it. And if it's good, then people can take those ideas and apply, right? Yeah. That's the part that you make the learning real because now it has an actionable measure to it. And that allows students to see that I didn't just do this for a grade that ends with this course. Right. I did something to impact my community and my greater society. Mm -hmm. and, and then and, they and, can take skills and keep keep using them beyond keep school. using them yes and that i think is what pedagogy is really all about and being that that is the case then we need to all join that cult mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nice nice finish that's good so, so i always like to end our show with a charge do you have a charge for our listeners as they walk away from this conversation what should they walk away now and do? What's the action that you would require of them from, from our time together? So since I don't know what everyone's personal sphere of influence is and their personal context, I can only speak to what has worked pretty well for me in terms of knowing what's what I think is the right thing and trying to get it out there, which is to speak up even if you're uncomfortable do it with humility and be open to receiving feedback and to growing because I feel like one of the things that's blocking all of us from progress is sort of all of our egos. I think it makes some of us be quiet when we shouldn't. It makes other people 
blast out nasty things when it's they're just trying to protect, you know, their own vulnerability. So I think we all do so much better when we're open to growth and feedback. And, and I think a lot of what we're seeing more and more is that the people who know what's right are pushing back and pushing back and pushing back on a lot of the systems and structures that have just not not worked and not been good for mo many, many people. So really just keep keep doing that, even though it's tiring and take breaks because <laughs> you need breaks, but just keep finding places where you can just, even if it's awkward, just say, I think we need to be doing this differently. And I don't have all the answers, but this thing here is not working. And I'd like to talk more about how we can do it better. And that's at least letting the room know that not everybody in this room agrees with how we're doing things. Agreed. Agreed. I think that's a, a, extremely important. Um, well, you know, Jennifer, it's been great having you um, on the program today. Uh, really appreciate you taking that time to come out with us. How can people contact you or get your information? Go ahead and put that out for the listeners. Okay. So basically just starting at cultofpedagogy.com. And from there, I've got links to where I am on social media, links to Twitter and, and Facebook, and there's a contact form and an email list that you can get on and sort of everything springs from from the website. So that's a great hub to start at. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And we from Leading by History say to you, peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We enjoyed being with you today and we look forward to being with you again soon. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.